In my place condemned he stood. This is the final in this series. Next Sunday morning, I'm going to continue the night series that I've been doing, Word Rooted Prayer and Worship. The last part of the message, the series on worship relates so much to our body life together. So next Sunday morning, this series will be finished. I'll be bringing, continuing the night series in the morning. And Sunday night, we're going to be going through the book of Malachi, the whole book of Malachi. There'll be study notes every week. That's at 5.30 sharp. That's not starting tonight, but starting next Sunday night. Substitutionary atonement, dealing with objections. This is continued from last week. And the text I opened up with, 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 24. If you have a Bible, look it up, because it's a striking text, and it says more than most people think it says. And I want you to put your finger under the words and follow along carefully and see the shocking thing that Paul is saying in this text, all right? When I say Paul, I mean... Paul, by the Holy Spirit. Oh, I don't have time to do this. Here's the essence. There are many differences, but the essential difference, okay? The rock bottom essential difference between New Testament Christianity and progressive Christianity. If you haven't heard that term, don't worry about it. But if you have, here's the main difference. There are many, but it boils down to this one. Progressives call this God's word the Bible. What they mean by that is God used people who wrote with their best understanding in the culture and history that they were in. God used them to speak certain things, but it's a collection of writings from that era, specifically for that era, and it may carry lessons for today as well. So they call it God's word, but they're perfectly free to say Paul was out of touch with same-sex relationships. He didn't have the understanding that we do today. So God was using Paul in that sense for that time. New Testament Christianity is every word in this book wasn't spoken by just a human author. And the New Testament is very clear on that. Jesus is very clear on that. When you read anything that Peter says, or James says, you're reading what God says. That's the root difference between progressive Christianity and New Testament Christianity, and I didn't have time to do that. 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 24. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It's a huge phrase right there. So in God's wisdom, God's infinite wisdom, he designed a redemption that would not make sense to us. Do you see what that's saying? In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. They're not going to figure it out that way. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And he's clear. This is a stumbling block to Jews, and it's nuts to Gentiles. Gentiles is, that's you, by the way. That's, that's the masses. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So this is a shocking text. It's, it's full of revelation on the nature of God's plan for redeeming mankind from sin and preserving us from his terrible, just, holy wrath. And what this text reveals is something we would never have discovered on our own. We need revelation to see this. God tells us something very illuminating about our redemption. And I hope, I hope, if nothing else, you will take the time to really see what the Spirit is saying in this text. Here it is. He tells us that left to our own best unaided thinking, we will, all of us, we will always misinterpret what Father God was doing through Christ's death. It won't seem, quotes, wise to us, 21. The world did not know God through wisdom. It won't seem powerful to us, and it won't seem relevant to us. And then the text tells us something even more shocking. It tells us that it was God's intention to undercut our natural instincts as we search for the meaning of Christ's death. Think about that. God's design was to invert our insights and to challenge our pride in his method of redemption. He was, the text says, forcing us to lean on his wisdom rather than ours. He doesn't do a survey on what's our opinion about the appropriateness of substitutionary atonement. He never even asks our opinion. He uses the cross to help all of us see that we need rescuing from our pride as much as from our adultery. So he confounds our proud wisdom and logic in order to fully rescue us. Now, in the last two weeks, we've considered some common objections being offered by many against the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. I'm just listing them. I'm not opening them up again. They're online. First, we consider the objection that there are other pictures of the atonement in the scriptures, and there are. Christ suffered and died as our example in laying down our own rights, 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. Christ died as our victor over Satan and the powers of darkness, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Studied those, I explained those. Secondly, we consider the objection that penal substitution isn't a concept that our culture will easily accept or likely to embrace. We don't like it. We studied that. Third, last Sunday, we considered the objection that the idea that God punishes our sins so violently on the cross makes a mockery of Jesus' teaching that we should love and forgive our enemies without even striking back. We studied that last week. Today, I want to look at two more as we wrap up. Two more objections. But here's, here's a pay attention point. 
in looking at these objections, we will be opening up what I consider to be two of the biggest theological truths in the whole Bible, all right? These two truths that we're going to unpack are, are the equivalent of the operating system of the Scriptures. You, you can be a Christian without a lot of things. You cannot follow Jesus without knowing these two truths. Christianity disappears without these two things that we're going to study. I'm just letting you know to watch for them as we unpack them. So here are two more objections. One. You all with me? Okay. Because this is one of those mornings where you, you got to keep your brain from going into neutral. Penal substitution, here's the objection, sets up a division within the members of the Trinity. God the Father is a God of wrath. Jesus Christ, God the Son, is the one who dies and bears God's wrath so sinner can be, sinners can be spared. So the mystery of the atonement is tied to the fact that whenever we speak about our redemption and the atonement, we are required to think about something that we don't think about very often. We believe in it, but we don't tackle it. You can't deal with this objection. The objection is, so you got this big, strong, angry God over here, and he's just anxious to get his hands on us, boy, and throw us into a lake of fire. And Jesus, who's loving and kind, he steps in. And he protects us from the big bad God. So you have this division within the Godhead. That's the objection. And my start in responding is you, you can't even begin to talk about the atonement until you think about something we don't like to think about very much. The Trinity. This is one of the operating system truths that I said you have to have in place. The fact that we don't usually think a lot about the Trinity, we don't process it all because we can't, for one thing. It only bears witness to the shallow ways we can sing and speak about the atonement without making the effort to really think through what's happening. And the result of this, I was going to say laziness, that might not be kind, but let's just say laziness. The result of this laziness in thinking about the Trinity is you, you end up with that perception. God is the angry judge. Jesus steps in to intervene. And then it, it's to, to complicate things, it doesn't help. We have words like justification, justified, and our minds are drawn into the legal world of cold verdicts. So is it true that penal substitutionary atonement splinters up the unity of the Trinity, making God the God of wrath and justice, and Jesus, full of grace and mercy, the Redeemer? And I'm saying it doesn't work. You can't say that for these reasons. A. Love and holy justice are not mutually exclusive, either in the Father or the Son. We need to start with some basics, theological basics. You, you can't move ahead without this. Remember, it was not the sacrifice of the Son that caused the Father to love us. 
It was the love of the Father that sent the Son to die for our sins. Do you see the difference there? God didn't start loving us after Jesus came and died for our sins. You'd think we would know this one pretty easily because there's a verse of Scripture that is pretty familiar with a lot of people. For God so loved the world. Just take these words. This is the Father. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. Perish isn't dying because we all die, Christians, non-Christians. Perishing's different. So the Father's divine love, John says, is the source of the Son's death not the result of it. But the verse shouldn't be misread. The idea behind these words isn't that God's love is a ringing endorsement and acceptance of the sinful state of Don Horbin or the world in which I live. No, it's a testimony to God's glorious, incredible, gracious heart that he sends the Son. There's more than just God's love described in John chapter 3. 316 is the one we like. 336 is the one we're not crazy about. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey, by the way, did you see what happened there? It's clever. Look what John does. So now I know what belief really means. Whoever believes in the Son has life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Look at this. The wrath of God remains on him. Now take care, take care now, when you look at John's point. The whole world is so incredibly loved by God. This world, the one that's so incredibly loved by God, is the same world that lies under his wrath. It's not either or, it's both and. You can't play one attribute against the other. And what's true of the Father is true of the Son. People don't think of this very often. The Son who came down, laid down his life in love for my sins, is the same Son, Jesus, who will one day judge sinners on the last day. You don't have to guess. Matthew 25, I edited it just to, to read it quick. When the Son of Man comes, so who are we talking about in this text? You can say it. It is. Yeah, it's Jesus. When he comes again. Comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. What's he going to do? Before him will be gathered all the nations. <clears throat> he will separate. Jesus, that's who this is. He will separate people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right. The goat's on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me. The me there is who? It's Jesus. Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire. Jesus. Jesus is saying this. And we know what the place is because Revelation talks about that place prepared for the devil and his angels, right? So we know the kind of hell he's talking about. Book of Revelation talks about 
hell being a place prepared for the devil and his angels. That's where Satan ends up. Now Jesus is saying human beings will be in the same place and it will be at Jesus say so. Now, can you fit that into your picture of Jesus? Because it's... Or look at John's words. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones. The great ones. The generals. The rich. The powerful. Everyone. Slave. Free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling for the mountains and the rocks. Fall on us. Hide us from the face of him. Which face is this? Who is seated on the throne and the, not the wrath of God, the way the New Testament usually describes it. The wrath of the Lamb. That's right. Take note. It's the wrath of the Lamb. So here's my point. The lesson is that the father and the son can't be played against each other. You know how kids like to do that with their parents? Our kids, when they were little, they'd want to go to Wonderland. They'd come to Rini and they'd ask for some money for lunch and some stuff. And Rini's very cheap when that kind of thing happens. And she'd give them like five bucks and the kids would come to me and go, Dad, got to help us out here. And I'd give them 20 bucks. You play one against the other. That's what people do with the Trinity. Only the New Testament won't let you do that. Now we're coming into something you really need to pay attention to. So B, here's a second reason why that objection doesn't work. The nature of the Trinity is the glue holding together the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Here's a very important text, and it contains some of the most important, albeit difficult, concepts concerning the relationship between the Father and the Son and all the members of the Trinity. Look this verse up. John 14. This is Jesus speaking, 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father... That's, that's the word I want to look at. And the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father, look, who dwells in me, dwells in me, does his works. Believe me. Now, Jesus is laboring something here, isn't he? Because you can see the repetition in the way I'm underlining. Believe me that I am in the Father. The Father is in me. Me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Now, that's very involved, but it's not the only time Jesus had to deal with this. Look at John 10, 37 and 38. If I'm not doing the works, the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand. Here he's going to say the same thing. The Father is in me. I am in the Father. Now, think about this. When Jesus said, okay, when Jesus said, the Father is in me and I am in the Father, 
He does not mean that he just went around thinking about the Father. He didn't mean he was in the Father and the Father was in him the way I might say, Rini is in me and I'm in Rini because, you know, during the day I think about a, a kiss that we stole in the morning and the scent of her perfume and her face and during the day I can think about her. That's not what, that's not what Jesus is talking about. He was describing the intricate working of the Trinity in words we find hard to relate to. And here's why. Here's why we find them hard to grasp. You and I can only understand persons as separate entities, right? That's the only way we can understand persons. We're not just persons, we're individuals. You and I inhabit our own exclusive physical space. We think our own thoughts. This is true even of the closest and dearest relations that we have here on earth. Persons are individuals. But when Jesus says he is in the Father and the Father is in him, he means they are persons, but they are not individuals. And our mind can't go there because the only existence we know is the one God created us with. And he created us different from himself in that we exist in our own separate selves. Now, understand what I'm saying here. There is more between the members of the Trinity than just a great deal of love. I can love someone, love them deeply, and yet not agree with him or her. I have a plaque. It's just a joke. My father gave it to me a long time ago, a plaque hanging in my office, and it just says, I would be happy to agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. So the truth is, when Jesus says he is in the Father and the Father is in him, he means not only that they are incredibly alike, he doesn't mean that, and frequently agree, he doesn't mean that. When Jesus says he is in the Father and the Father is in him, unlike us as individuals, he means it is impossible. This is important. It is impossible for the Father and the Son not to agree on everything, always, every time, everywhere. He means it is impossible for the Trinity not to have exactly the same character on every issue. They have different roles relationally. The Father is the Father and not the Son. The Son is the Son and not the Father. The Spirit is neither the Father nor a second Son. So yes, they are mysteriously three persons, but they are not three individual deities. It is impossible for the members of the Godhead to ever have an argument. Because they are one. 
in a deeper sense than just mutual respect and love, like we can show to each other even when we disagree. But they are one in a deeper sense than that. I know this is... I know this is a bit of work for a Sunday morning, but it's incredibly important. Christianity does not function as a viable religion without this. The members of the Trinity always have the same, the exact same desire and goal. There are no exceptions. They have different functions in the Godhead. For an example, one that's maybe easier to figure out. The Father and the Son are both said to send the Spirit in the New Testament. But the Spirit is never said to send the Father or the Son. But for all that, the Spirit is not less God than the Father and the Son. It's a different role. Another example. The Son becomes incarnate, enters human flesh and the human condition. The Holy Spirit indwells the believer, but without ever taking on human flesh. It's different. But they're not in conflict ever. So here's the conclusion. We're dealing with this objection, remember? The big, mean, wrathful father, merciful, kind Jesus steps in and says, no, 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 leave Don alone. Leave Don. That's the objection we're dealing with. The conclusion of this is it's internally impossible for the members of the Trinity to ever be other than of exactly the same mind and heart and character in their love for the world and in their eternal opposition to anything sinful. They're fully united always, consistently. And I hope you can see, I know it's work, but I hope you can see that this isn't mental mumbo-jumbo. We're, we're, we're studying what goes into the very heart of Stephen Chalk's inflammatory remarks. Remember last week, for the Father to punish the Son for my sins is cosmic child abuse. Now, aside from being incredibly blasphemous, what I'm trying to show you here in this important topic is the charge fails to land on a lot of accounts, and all of them have to do with grasping what Jesus himself taught about the nature of the Godhead. So there are two reasons why Stephen Chalk is dead wrong. First, Jesus knowingly and willingly laid down his life for our sins. Is this on the screen? This verse, John 10, 17, 18? Read it out loud with me, would you? For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. See, this is exactly where Stephen Chalk's remarks go off the rails. Cosmic child abuse, seriously? Child abuse? 
is so-called because that's what it is. It's abusive because it's the selfish exerting of a stronger will over against a weaker one. That's what child abuse is. That's what makes child abuse so offensive. The child has no chance. That's what upsets all of us. Second, Chalk is wrong calling the atonement cosmic child abuse because Jesus laid down his life precisely to bring himself untold glory. But we see him who for a little while, this is Jesus, made, look at this, lower than the angels that he created, namely Jesus, in case we weren't sure who he's talking about, crowned with glory and honor. Why? Well, because his crucifixion. Child abuse is carried out for no one's glory but the perverted gratification of the abuser. Christ died to bring glory to the Father and himself and redeem mankind. Shame on Stephen Chalk. Shame on Stephen Chalk. Number two, point number two. Here's another objection. The last one we'll get to. Even if the son is willing to die, it's unjust of God the Father to punish Jesus for my sin. Now, for a lot of people, more progressives, writing on the atonement today, this seems to be the heart of resistance to penal substitution. I mean, for us, I guess it certainly seems advantageous for Jesus to die in our place, the just for the unjust, as the scriptures say, but is it right? Is it fair? Can we legitimately punish an innocent person in place of the guilty? How does that work? To make things worse, it seems like the Bible doesn't go for that concept. Look at these words from Proverbs. He who justifies the wicked. Isn't that what God does, by the way? Isn't it? It's not a trick. That's exactly what he does. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So, God seems to set it up as a moral absolute that it's wrong to treat the guilty as though they were innocent and it's wrong to treat the innocent as though they were guilty. Once that happens, it seems like the foundations of justice and fair play, it seems like they start to crumble. So what does this do to penal substitutionary atonement? How should we respond to this objection that for Father God to punish the Son for my sin is a travesty of justice. And here again, there are hard-won blessings if you understand the nature of the Trinity. The objection that penal substitutionary atonement sets up a division between the wrath of Father God and the mercy of the Son. It has its roots in misunderstanding the Trinity. We just studied that. Now, 
the objection that it is wrong to punish the innocent party and acquit the guilty has its roots in a failure to grasp. Remember at the beginning I said there are two doctrines that are the operating system? Please tell me you remember that. One was the Trinity. You can't make sense of the atonement nor a host of Bible passages unless you have at least a, a, a basic working knowledge. You can never grasp the whole thing, but a working knowledge of what the Bible says about the Trinity. That's truth number one for the operating system of Christianity. Here, in this objection, we're going to look at truth number two. That's the second operating system truth. The objection that it's wrong to punish the innocent and acquit the guilty that I read from Proverbs and many writers has its roots in a failure to grasp the second operating system doctrine, which is our oneness with Christ. I'm not talking about the Trinity now. How many times, think about it, you do Bible reading, how many times does the Bible reboot this idea of our being, quote, in Christ, united to Christ, these are quotes, baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his sufferings, in Christ, Christ in us, Christ in you. Do you see something happening here? There's something between Chris, me, you, as a Christian. There's something being said about the relationship I have with Jesus now. The references pile up so quickly, and we read them so frequently that maybe we don't process what we're reading. We see them, but it's hard to make them click. Because obviously, when, when something is referred to so often, it's something the biblical writers assume in order to make everything else work. The doctrine is simply remembered under the label of the believer's union with Christ. And here's what it means. It means that just as the members of the Trinity can't be properly identified apart from their place with the other persons in the Trinity, in the same way, the believer, me, you, we don't think of ourselves properly. The believer can't properly be understood apart from his or her relationship of being in Christ. But it goes further. This is the great Christmas truth. We're coming to it. To our astonishment, we discover something. That our understanding of Jesus Christ of Nazareth in his incarnate state can't be accurate or complete apart from his union with us as believers. He was born in Bethlehem. Jesus since he was born in Bethlehem, Jesus can't be understood apart from his complete, entire identification with you and me and our sinful nature. When we start to unpack this, here's what we find. Its significance is so rich and important, I wish I could make it sound more exciting to you.
We say so many times, Jesus died on the cross for sinners. It's not untrue, but it's, it's dangerously incomplete. Jesus didn't die on the cross merely for sinners. The Bible says he became sin. If the Bible didn't say this, it would be shocking to say, Jesus didn't die on the cross just for sinners. He died on the cross. Listen, listen. He died on the cross a sinner. Does that shock you? He who knew no sin, Paul says, became sin. Here's where this goes. God isn't punishing an innocent person on the cross. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. It doesn't mean just that I think about Jesus a lot during the day. There's, there's, there's an organic relationship. It's like the Trinity. You can't explain it fully. It's like, oh, I'm running out. Look at this. For our sakes, he, who's this? That's the father. Made him, that's the son. Let this, let this kind of pin you to your seat. To, to be sin. Not just carry it. To be sin who, who knew no sin. So that, here's the other side, in him, remember I'm talking about life in Christ. Christ in us, we in Christ. In him, we might become the righteousness of God. It's, it's gigantic. So, Jesus didn't die on the cross merely as God dying for sinners. God was in Christ, it's true. And sinners to place saving trust in Christ don't receive just God's approval merely as sinful individuals that we might become the righteousness of God. If you've ever heard words deeply in this church while I've been here as pastor, hear these deeply enough to change you, so deeply that they shake you a little bit. This is the answer to the objection. How can God punish an innocent person for a guilty person? And the answer is, he doesn't. He punishes a guilty person who became sin for Don Horban. And when God looks at me, he doesn't just ignore sin and let me off the hook. I become the righteousness of Christ. We're not just talking about thinking about things and imagining things. There's no sleight of hand here. This is the rock bottom teaching of the New Testament. How do we get our truths, our minds and hearts around a truth this big? Well, at least let's try. Let's be on the right track. All we can do is bow, weep, Rejoice. Jesus doesn't die as some separate third party. He becomes you, becomes me in all our filth, in all our sin, 
and all our unrighteousness. I want to say it in a way that will shock you. Jesus becomes everything God hates on that cross. Has anybody ever told you that before? How big is this truth that Jesus on the cross, the only place, the only place in the Bible where he doesn't pray and call God Father? Have you noticed it? My God, my God. And what he feels is the forsakenness of a sinner before God. Why, Why have you forsaken me? He didn't commit acts of sin. But the relationship between being in Christ and Christ in me is a real relationship. It's not just mental gymnastics. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And it's like, and it's like John wants us to note this distinction. That we should be called. Anybody can do that. Called righteous. That we should be called children of God. And and it's like he wants to say, I'm not kidding here. So we are. This is an incredible transaction. Rejoice in it. Understand what's happening on the cross. Understand what's happening on the cross because you are in Christ and Christ is in you. God isn't punishing an innocent person for a guilty person on the cross. That's not what's happening. He's punishing the one who bears and becomes the sins of the whole world. And he isn't letting me off the hook, ignoring my sin. He looks at me and I become the righteousness of Christ. John says, and that is what you are. Children of God. Now, seriously, in all the shops and stores and businesses, does anybody have anything this big to offer the world? Does anybody? No. Protect the gospel, church. Protect the gospel. Think about it the way we've been laboring, I know, this morning, because it, it just makes it bigger. More mysterious and bigger. And the critics can't touch it. Thank you, Lord Jesus. There's not a verse in the Bible that says it's always going to be a simple, easy book. We're called to think. We're called to study. We're called to ponder. We're called to feed our souls. start to understand how redemption works and and the big operating system truths behind it. The Trinity, God and Jesus aren't on different paths. They agree on everything because they're one. And being in Christ, God doesn't punish the innocent for the guilty. Jesus becomes guilty. We become children of God. No wonder at the name of Jesus ascended, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Muhammad never did this. He can't. 
There's no one who does this but Jesus, the Lord of all. We praise you for big redemption. In Jesus' name.